This is Joseph Bower, and I'd like to welcome you to another podcast from Hatik Bahamashiach Ministries. You know, the first two chapters of the book of Genesis are a virtual storehouse of lessons for any student of the Bible. The lessons begin with the very first letter of the Hebrew text, and therein lies a problem. Translations of the Hebrew text seldom reveal so many of these lessons, and sometimes even conceal mistakes made by the translators. Almost all English Bibles are translated from the Masoretic text that was developed between the 7th and 10th century CE. In the years following the Messiah's first sojourn among us, people began losing their ability to read the Hebrew text. and This prompted several groups to begin working on a solution and, with the help of rabbinic authorities and oral traditions, the Masoretic text evolved. This text used a system of vowel points and marks and spaces between words, marginal notes, and other helpful notations. And although several groups worked to develop this system over the years, the work of the Ben Asher and the Ben Naftali families became the most commonly accepted. Unfortunately, the Masoretes made some intentional changes to the original text. Some of these were minor and others were not so minor. In contrast, we have the Septuagint, which is a much earlier translation of the Hebrew text. Sometime about the mid-3rd century BCE, 72 Hebrew scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes, all working independently of each other, translated the Hebrew text into Greek. And many consider this nothing short of a miracle because of all 72 of the Hebrew scholars agreed on the accuracy of each other's translations. Now, the translation became known as the Septuagint. Today, many refer to the Septuagint as the LXX, which is the Roman number for 70. The number 70 was chosen because some sources state that there are only 70 Hebrew scholars, but that's an entirely different study. So which translation should one use to study the Tanakh? Now, I realize that a lot of people call the Tanakh the Old Testament, but that's a term that I disagree with because I don't believe there's anything old about the Father's Word beginning in Genesis 1 all the way through. So what's the best translation to use? Actually, the answer is all three. In order to truly study the Tanakh, you need all three. You need a good Hebrew Bible, a Septuagint, and one of the better English translations such as the Scriptures Bible, the New King James, or the New American Standard. Using all three helps bring the Hebrew text to life and the mistranslations or changes made by the Masoretics are easier to track. For instance, the first word in Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew text is Bereshith, and it's translated usually as in the beginning. Now, on a Torah scroll, that very first letter, the Beit, which is transliterated as a B, it represents a house, and it's written to look somewhat like a house. It has a floor, a right-hand wall and a roof, but the left-hand wall is an open door. And traditionally, this enlarged bait or house with the open door on the left signifies that every word that proceeds from that point proceeds from the house of Elohim. Also, since there's no window on the right-hand wall, we're taught that whatever happened before in the beginning is none of our concern. Even translating Bereshith as in the beginning raises a question. The bait, transliterated as a B, as I said, can mean in, at, or with. And Bereshith means beginning. As I mentioned, 
Almost all English Bibles are translated from the Masoretic text. And yet the Masoretic text doesn't say in the beginning. It actually says in a beginning, which means that most English translations, including the King James and New American Standard, whichever one, should actually read in a beginning, not in the beginning. So in a beginning, Elohim created the heavens and earth. Another example of the importance of using more than one translation is found in Genesis 2.2. Quoting from the King James Bible, this verse reads, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. Now the Septuagint translates this verse differently. It states, God completed his work that he did on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he ceased from all of his work that he did on the sixth day. Notice the difference? One of the most repeated commandments in the Torah is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it set apart or to keep it holy. And yet the King James Bible suggests that Elohim didn't complete his work of this creation until the seventh day on the Sabbath. Elohim therefore worked on the Sabbath until he finished and then he rested, which would put it, Elohim, at odds with his own commandments. Now the Septuagint protects the continuity of Scripture by stating he completed his work on the sixth day. Thus we refer to creation as the six days of creation, not the seven days of creation. Now while some may consider this a minor point, the importance of every letter Every word, every jot, and every tittle in Scripture cannot be overstated. Changing one word of Yehovah Elohim's word had a tremendous impact on how we understand, or rather misunderstand, Scripture. Thus, we have the commandments against adding to or taking away from his word. And the Messiah, in his teaching from the Mount of Beatitudes, stated, Do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to complete. For truly I say to you, till the heaven and earth pass away, one yod or one tittle shall by no means pass from the Torah till all be done. For those who believe the Messiah came to fulfill all of the Torah so that they are no longer required to keep but a few of his commandments, consider this. The Messiah said he didn't come to destroy the Torah or the prophets, but to complete them. So if you accept the premise that the Messiah fulfilled the commandment so you don't have to, then you must also accept that he fulfilled all the prophecies and the prophets as well, so there is no more prophecy to be fulfilled. And this would include his return to gather his father's chosen ones, which was prophesied first in Ezekiel chapter 20, 33-38. Also, since the heaven and earth have not passed away, Neither has even one jot of the tittle passed from the Torah, much less any of the commandments. Now, if you've never undertaken a study of the jots and tittles in Scripture, let me encourage you to do so. The whole point is that we must pay attention to every word contained in Scripture and accept it just as it is written. It is a mistake to try to interpret His Word in a way that supports your beliefs or your traditions. This, at least to me, is especially true for the first two chapters of Genesis. A few years ago, I was asked why there were two accounts of the first six days of this creation, one in chapter 1 and the other in chapter 2. 
Now, the traditional answer to that question is that, that chapter 2 actually reveals more of the details of the creation story that took place in chapter 1. But this isn't supported by what's written in Scripture. So let's examine what these chapters actually say. We'll begin by quoting from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And Elohim said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all the creeping creatures that creep on the ground. And Elohim created the man in his image, and in the image of Elohim he created him. Male and female he created them. So Elohim blessed them, and Elohim said to them, Be fruitful and increase, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over all the creeping creatures on the earth. And Elohim said, See, I have given you every plant that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, for you it is to be food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and every creeping creature on the earth in which there is a living being, every green plant is for food, and it came to be so. Now, in this passage, man is translated from the word Adam. And in verse 26 and again in 27, he refers to man as them. The Septuagint translates Adam as mankind or humankind, referring to man in general and not one specific person, more than one man. This translation is actually supported by the verses that follow. For example, in verse 27, he states that in the image of Elohim, he created him. Male and female, he created them, which is plural. Verse 28 supports that this is mankind and men and women and not a single man, and that Elohim commands them to be fruitful and multiply, which takes both a man or a woman. And this is only one of the commands that they were given. Let's look at some of the rest of the commands given to man or mankind. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. And they were to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping creatures of the earth. They were given every plant that yields seed on all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed as food for them. While every beast of the earth, bird of the heavens, and creeping creature in which there is a living being. And that living being is from the Hebrew word nefesh which means soul. So yes, animals have souls. They were given every green plant for food. Now it's also noteworthy in this passage that mankind was created and created this from the word bara. And the most common understanding of bara is that Elohim created something from nothing. But the root word of bara means simply to create something that has never existed before. Now having studied that account in chapter 1, now let's look at chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, and then 15 through 20. Beginning in verse 7, And yod heh Elohim formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And yod heh planted a garden in Eden to the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yehovah Elohim made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, with the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And Yehovah Elohim took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. And Yehovah Elohim commanded the man, saying, 
eat of every tree of the garden, but knew not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall certainly die. And yet Elohim said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I am going to make a helper for him as his counterpart. And from the ground Yudhe formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living being, that was its name. So the man gave name to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper for him as a counterpart. Now in Genesis 1.26, Elohim said, Let us make man in our image. But Genesis 2.7 says that Yudhe Elohim formed the man out of the dust of the ground. And there are two or three major differences in these two passages. In chapter 1, Elohim created man something that never existed before. While in chapter 2, Yudhe Elohim, formed the man out of the dust of the earth. Now remember, the name Elohim represents our Father acting in his attribute of judgment, while Yudhe Elohim is our Father tempering his judgment with his attribute of mercy. Chapter 1 also uses the term Adam, which can indicate one man or mankind in general, but chapter 2 uses the term Ha-Adam, and that Ha prefix is singular, indicating a specific individual. Man in chapter 1 was created from the Hebrew word bara, while in chapter 2 he formed the man, Ha-Adam, and formed is from the Hebrew word Yezer, from the root word which means to, it's used to indicate how pottery is formed or made. And the differences continue in verses 8 and 9. In chapter 1, Adam was given dominion over the animals, birds, fish, while in chapter 2, Ha-Adam was not given this dominion. In chapter 1, Adam was commanded to be fruitful and increase, to fill the earth and subdue it. Ha-Adam in chapter 2 was not given this command. Instead, he was placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it, though we're not told what he was to guard it from. Adam, Adam, was given every plant that yields seed and every tree whose fruit yields seed is food. Ha-Adam was commanded to eat every tree of the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam was created both male and female. Ha-Adam was alone. It was some time later before Yudhe Elohim fashioned, and that word fashioned is from Bana, to build, Kava or Eve, as a helpmate for him. Now, the purpose of this podcast is not to try to change your opinion about the six days of creation, but to demonstrate the importance of not changing, adding to or taking away from any of Elohim's word, and just as importantly, keep his word in context of what is written. Doing so will often challenge some of the traditional teachings of men, but our goal is to seek the truth, not tradition. One of the reasons I pursued ordination as a Messianic rabbi and a teacher was the whole concept of being a Hebrew teacher. My understanding had always been that as a rabbi and a teacher, my responsibility is to teach you how to study your Hebraic roots, how to study the Hebrew text, not to teach you what to believe. Teaching you what to believe is the responsibility of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you. Grab your different translations. Dig into this word. You will never be disappointed. 
challenged but never disappointed. So what really happened in the six days of creation? Well, now you have your study laid out for you. And once again, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me at mravyosef at gmail.com. That's M-R-A-V-Y-O-S-E-F at gmail.com. And have a great Sabbath. Shalom, shalom.